Hi everybody, this is Jimmy DeYoung Jr. with Prophecy Today. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And Rick, this is a very important weekend when you look at the three religions. You've got Passover, you've got Easter, the ending of the Passion Week, and you've got Ramadan, and they all come together at the same time. That's right, Jimmy. So many things taking place around the world today, and we've got our normal lineup of broadcasters, plus a few extra. We've got Ken Timmerman talking about geopolitical affairs, Dave Dolan with the Middle East News Update, Winky Madad will join us to talk about Passover in Israel, and there's more, right, Jimmy? There sure is. Steve Herzig will be here with us, Friends of Israel, of course, as always. And then at the end of the program, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung will come in, and he will give us his understanding of how we get Jesus Christ in the grave three days and three nights. That's all coming up on the program. Well, we've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. Ken Timmerman joins us today. He is our normal guest, and he's our expert in geopolitical affairs, and he's someone we call on almost weekly because he's super knowledgeable in things that are taking place around the world. So, Ken, I thank you for joining us this Easter weekend. Uh, Rick, thanks for having me, and uh, this is a blessed time for all of us as Christians to celebrate our risen Lord and to sing out loudly, shout out a glad song. Amen, Ken. I love it. Well, we'll start off where we have been starting off our program in the recent weeks, and that's in the Russia and the Ukraine crisis. Long-term effects of this invasion, I've noticed some things and uh, things that are coming out in the news about how NATO may fundamentally change because of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, that's right, Rick. Say, I think there are things going on militarily mm -hmm. on the ground in Ukraine. And again, we are being hit by the fog of wars. But remember, already a week ago, we heard about yet another Russian armored column. Now, all of a sudden, it's gone. We're talking about a Russian armored column this time moving down to the Donbass. Uh, these are the troops that had evacuated from the Kiev area and moved back into Belarusia and into Russia, regrouped and moving down into Donbass. Well, what happened to that column? Did it arrive? Something tells me that it did not arrive. Uh, the Ukrainians have already shown that they are very good at using javelin missiles and other uh, weapons to knock out these armored columns. My guess is that they may have knocked out that armored column. The other very important thing that happened on the ground was Thursday's missile strike by the Ukrainians on the flagship of the Russian fleet. That is down in Crimea. Now, that is absolutely astonishing. They sank the ship. <laughs> they sank the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. I mean, this is an amazing accomplishment. It's the second warship they have uh, sunk in the war so far. And the Russians have just displayed an extraordinary lack of competence on the battlefield. Their weapons have been uh, shown up to be not at all what we thought they were. We, we were watching the Russians in Syria, right? And since 2005, they have been trying out new weapon systems, uh, helicopters and uh, air-launched missiles and uh, everything on, on the ground, you know, literally hundreds of new weapon systems. And, and as the world watched, we said, okay, well, there's, there's Russia getting ready. They're going to re-equip their armed forces with all these new weapons, and they're testing them here in the battlefield. Your, your dad and I spoke about this on air several times uh, it, you know, from 2015 on. Well, guess what? In Syria, the Russians had no adversary. There was nobody shooting back. Now, here they are in Ukraine. And they've got a real adversary on the ground who's shooting back. Ukraine is payback 
for Syria. But let me go back. I didn't mean to derail uh, your original question and, and not to get into it. Uh, we are facing a new situation here with NATO and uh, a, a new balance of power in Europe, both. And, and NATO is beginning to recognize that they will face a, the potential of a new war in the European heartland. And we have been beefing up troops. There's, there's 20,000 fresh troops who've been uh, now pretty much permanently stationed in places like Estonia, in Poland, in Slovakia, uh, R Romania, Moldova, places right on the border uh, with either Ukraine or Russia to prevent Putin from uh, thinking that he can just easily walk into uh, some of his new neighbors or some of his, his, his neighbors who have either joined NATO or, or are about to join NATO. The most um, dangerous situation is really in Estonia and those Baltic republics. That has been on the radar for many, many years. Putin has uh, claimed, has staked, staked a claim to those three Baltic states for many years. I was, I can remember right after the um, Cold War ended, I went to Estonia to research a new book. And, you know, it was astonishing to see the presence of the Russian mob on the streets. They were everywhere and they were openly flouting their power, their money, they were flashing, they were, you know, they were jingling like a Christmas tree with gold bracelets and watches and, and, and cell phones. Uh, and that was in the era when cell phones were uh, about as big as a shoebox, remember? Um, and, and, and so this is a long standing goal of Putin to take back in his mind, the Baltic states and NATO is, has recognized that and NATO is standing up to it. So we have really changed at NATO the uh, way that we operate. Um, our guard had been down since the end of the Cold War. Now NATO's guard is going back up. And uh, I think you're going to see a rearming of uh, Central Europe. Well, with the changing realization of uh, Russia's power, or it seems to be lack of power or lack of strength, it's, it's reorganizing things in Europe, but not only in Europe, but also in the Middle East. Uh, well, it is. And, and the Russians have been uh, shown to be a bit of a paper tiger, uh, astonishingly. Uh, many Middle Eastern countries, and we spoke about this last week, the reaction of the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates, many of those countries have been turning to Russia because they do not trust the United States under Joe Biden. But they are seeing what is happening to the Russian military and to Russian weapon systems. And I think many, many of these countries are having second thoughts. And uh, a, 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 an old uh, contact of mine uh, at, who's now at the Washington Institute, Ehud Yari, he's a former journalist uh, from Israel and prominent military commentator, he thinks that this will actually open the door for an increased Chinese penetration to the mm. Middle East. Mm. Well, sticking with the Middle East, there's not a whole lot going on with these negotiations that uh, the U.S. is conducting with Iran on the nuclear deal. But there is some information that is coming out of Washington right now about Iran, is there not? Uh, yes, and this is a big, big deal. It is not getting a lot of coverage in the press. It's getting some. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, the um, uh, federal, federal uh, prosecutors and, and the FBI uh, arrested two Iranians for impersonating Homeland Security agents 
and the and their goal uh, in this impersonation was really to get access to the Secret Service, especially to the Secret Service presidential detail guarding the president of the United States. Uh, these two men, Ariane Tahirzadeh and a guy named Haider Ali, were caught with an extraordinary arsenal of weapons, uh, identity papers, the ability to forge government identity documents, uh, you know, those plastified cards that you'd wear around your neck when you go into government buildings. Uh, so they could forge those cards. They even had computer chip cards they were able to forge. And they had a whole counter surveillance arsenal of equipment to detect bugs and everything else. And the question is, what were they here doing? What was, what was their real mission? I can reveal here on this radio today uh, from my Iranian sources, that these two men are really the tip of the iceberg of an underground network of Iranian government agents, Cubs Force agents, very specifically, whose task in the United States is to track down President Trump and to assassinate him. This is, I believe, the front end. Now, I don't know if these two individuals personally were involved in that plot. I suspect that we're going to learn more about that in the coming weeks. But I can tell you for a fact, there are over a hundred Iranian agents in this country and they are looking for President Trump and they believe they have a plan to kill him and they want to do it before the midterm elections. So this is something you can come back to this date. Uh, here we are, April 16th, the day before Easter 2022. In six months from now, if you hear horrible news, the feds should have known that by today. Well, that's an astonishing assertion, but I will, and when you give me that report, I think of two things. One, the report is in the mainstream news, but you don't hardly hear it. It's almost like it's being buried, and it's an amazing uh, fact that those two agents were there. And secondly, we all know that different from the Biden administration, President Trump was certainly not friendly with Iran. Uh, no, he was not. And uh, he pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal for a very good reason. Look, the thing about these, the, the arrest, the arrest have been public. The indictment has been public. The feds are dribbling out information as they find more uh, out uh, about these guys. But the one thing that they will not tell you, they said they pose a danger to the community. But how about they pose a danger to President Trump, a danger to former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, to the former national security advisor, John Bolton, to the former director of the CIA. Uh, how come they haven't actually spoken about that? I think that they are really panicking at this point and trying to put together the pieces of this network, which is very large all over the United States. As we see from these arrests, these men are well armed as well. They've been able to buy all the equipment that they could possibly need to carry out a sniper attack against former U.S. government officials. Uh, this is a huge, huge story. And obviously, the Biden people don't want us to know it. Well, Ken, I am thankful for the fact that you are a multitasker because you have your finger on the pulse of so many different events taking place around the world, and you really do a great job of educating our listeners. So thank you so much for your information today. Uh, happy Easter, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. 
Praise the Lord. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. Thank you, Ken Timmerman, and thank you, Rick. Ken does keep his fingers really on the pulse of what's happening around the world, and he keeps us aware. All of these stories that we are covering all point to prophetic events that are going to take place in the future, and that is after the rapture of the church. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East news update about what's taking place in the land of Israel, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Ukraine claims that Russia used chemical weapons on the city of Mariupol on Monday evening. The city's been under siege since the early days of Russia's invasion. Western nations consider chemical weapons an escalation because they put civilians in danger. Over four and a half million refugees have fled Ukraine to escape the violence so far. Mike Jorgensen with E3 Partners recently visited the Polish border with Ukraine. Everybody we talked to had Ukrainian families living with them. And so a lot of a lot of the people that weren't going to other countries were actually living with uh, in Polish homes. And this pastor was giving the uh, Ukrainian believers evangelistic materials in Polish to share with their Polish hosts. Pray the war would end soon. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. And Translate Radio and Jesus Film Project teamed up to produce an audio drama version of the Jesus Film just in time for Easter. But after war broke in Ukraine, Brandon Neal with TWR says, My contact at crew, his name's Tom, he reached out to me and he said, Hey, what can we do for the people that are there in Ukraine? Can we do additional broadcasts of the Jesus film audio drama to reach people in turmoil? And so we were able through this partnership to take the Jesus film audio drama in the Russian language and Ukrainian language and broadcast it back to back every day for six straight weeks. TWR's radio broadcasts go into Ukraine and surrounding countries. Pray for Ukrainians and Russians to experience the transformation of Jesus. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener-supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. And we're back here on Prophecy Today with our Middle East News Update. Dave Dolan is with us. He uh, joins us just about every week, and he joins us especially this Easter week. We've got a lot to talk about, and we're going to talk about Easter a little bit as well. But Dave, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be with you on this special weekend, Passover as well today. Yes, sir. Well, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was the violence that took place yesterday, Good Friday. It's also Friday prayers during Ramadan for the Muslim world. Could you update us on the situation that took place there in the city of Jerusalem? Well, Rick, it was foreseen that there were going to be problems uh, on the Temple Mount because Hamas, Islamic Jihad, uh, several other Palestinian groups, uh, people in the PA, uh, and even the chief mufti of Jerusalem, uh, who is on the Temple Mount, uh, they called for Palestinians to come up on Friday and, quote, defend Al-Aqsa against Zionist uh, plots. And that was based on a call by a small um, Jewish Orthodox group that supports rebuilding the temple. They offered uh, 10,000 shekels to anybody that would sacrifice a lamb on the Temple Mount uh, on Friday, which is nearly $3,000. Well, 
Um, of course, that wasn't going to happen. You know the security that there is around the gates into the Temple Mount. You can't uh, bring a live uh, goat or a, sh- a sheep or, you know, <laughs> up into there, smuggle it in. So it wasn't going to happen, and everyone knew it. But nevertheless, the police were prepared for extra trouble, and sure enough, we got it. They said it was just a few hundred out of the 10,000 Palestinians up there worshiping for uh, Ramadan, as you said, their holy month this year coinciding with both Passover and Easter. And um, yet they were doing nefarious things. They were breaking bottles and getting stones and rocks and dumping them down on the Jewish worshipers. It's, of course, um, not Shabbat. It wasn't yet Shabbat or Passover, but there's always a huge crowd there uh, on the days leading up to Passover, people praying and et cetera. And the police waited to disperse them uh, until after the prayers ended, and they said they did that deliberately. Well, that brought great criticism from uh, some in the Bennett government, even on the right, and many of the opposition saying that's a weak response. It just encouraged this violence. But uh, tear gas, uh, rubber bullets, uh, et cetera, were used. Uh, of course, the guys run into the mosque itself, Al-Aqsa Mosque, and a hole up in there, and then the police have to go up to that, and it causes, you know, all of this uproar. So we've had condemnations from Iran already and from other uh, Arab sources around the region. So they set it up. I would call it a flag operation, you know. They set it up. They goad all of their people to go up there and do stuff. Then it happens, and then they blame Israel for it. And it seems to many Israeli uh, security analysts that uh, Hamas is trying, with Iran's backing, to uh, start another war, possibly, like we had last Ramadan, uh, which last year was in May, and uh, an excuse to fire rockets again and that sort of thing. And there's nothing, as you know very well, more emotional than uh, the Temple Mount, both to the Muslims in the region and to the Jews, especially, of course, observant Jews, but really all all Jews. So that's the flashpoint, and they're pushing hard. Of course, this comes in the background of Israel stepping up its military activities in Judea and Samaria over the past few weeks. So basically, we have a mini uprising going on. I say mini compared to the previous two in volume, at least so far. And by the way, Passover today is the 20th anniversary of what's known as the Passover Massacre, Rick. I was in uh, Jerusalem when that happened, when a hotel in Netanya, north of Tel Aviv, was attacked during the meal, during the Seder meal. Uh, 29 were immediately killed. Some others died later and over 150 wounded and that was known as Black March, and that year Passover was a little earlier, 20 years ago. And um, in the in the Western calendar, I should say, it's always the same in the Hebrew calendar. And uh, we had attacks, you'll recall, in Jerusalem near the prime minister's office. The supermarket in Jerusalem was attacked. Uh, we had, uh, it was called Black March. We had about 130 people, Israelis, killed in terror attacks. So it's not... As bad as that, but they're trying to keep this wave of attacks from growing and, of course, trying to prevent a full war from breaking out again with Hamas in the Gaza Strip, which this time could involve Hezbollah. We had warnings from several Iranian Revolutionary Guard leaders this week that they're ready to fight, they're ready to go after Israel. One of them said Israel's too weak to resist us. Well, I think they may find otherwise in a a real war about that. 
but it's a very tense situation and Israel's trying to keep a lid on it, but it's very much affecting uh, the stability of the already shaky Israeli government as well. Well, we know that this instability in the Israeli government is supported, uh, even materially supported by Iran, and it seems like this has emboldened them to make some statements, one of them saying they will harshly confront Israel wherever it feels necessary. Yes, that was one of the leaders of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards giving a speech this week, and uh, he was commenting on the... um, a uh, barrage that they sent of missiles against uh, what they said was was an Israeli base, secret base in northern Iraq near Erbil, and uh, saying that we will do much more of that. We'll, in other words, we'll send our missiles anywhere we want, anywhere we think uh, they're needed. And he talked about Hezbollah, how strong it is, he claimed. And there's truth to that. They're heavily armed. He talked about their extensive underground tunnel system that Israel cannot penetrate, indicating that's where they're keeping all their rockets. Well, Israel already knew that, but that they've got a lot more resources, he indicated, than Israel knows about. So, you know, they're threatening uh, the destruction of Israel all the time, and, and that was in his speech as well, is that we won't, uh, it won't be long until the Zionist regime is no more. So again, we've been hearing these statements uh, for several decades but they keep working towards it. And, you know, whereas they were a lightly armed country, much larger than Israel always, but much less armed uh, 30, 40 years ago, they now are a regional superpower. But of course, Israel is as well. And uh, we'll just have to wait and see how that uh, comes out. But it's a very tense situation. And as I've said uh, several times in the last few weeks, uh, I think the chances of the full war we've been expecting with Iran to come soon are pretty high, and uh, Hamas's actions stirring everything up, and Islamic Jihad, the other groups, uh, may be more indications of that. Well, David, as you said, we have been monitoring that situation, and we will continue to monitor it uh, as we do this every week with you in our Middle East News Update. We move on from uh, the current events that are taking place in the world, and let's look at an event that took place 2,000 years ago, David. I know you were a longtime resident of the city of Jerusalem, and right now, this time of the year during Easter, we focus on events that took place there over 2,000 years ago right now at Easter. If I could, if I could just get you to maybe give some recollections of what it was like to spend Easter in Jerusalem, and, and if you do, have an Easter message for our listeners this week. Well, Rick, my favorite thing working with CBS for uh, 12 years and other media outlets, but especially for this large secular network, it's not the Christian Broadcasting Service, um, was to go to the Garden Tomb and uh, sometimes the Church of the Holy Sepulchre too, but especially the Garden Tomb and not only enjoy the uh, sunrise service, but then interview uh, people who were there for the first time, usually from the United States, Canada, all over the world, but I would go for English speakers. Testimonies is what they were. They were usually saying how thrilled they were, and the Lord is risen, and and I would put in bits of the sound of the singing and the the hymns and that, and uh, really take that the Easter morning service all across America via CBS radio network. Mm -hmm. There wasn't many chances I had on CBS to do anything uh, spiritual or religious, but uh, that gave me that and Christmas 
every year gave me the chance to send those sorts of things back. And of course, for me personally, I never got tired of going to the garden tomb and those services. Uh, what a wonderful way to start Easter. And of course, many people listening today will be going to their services tomorrow uh, around the country and in the world. And God bless them all. But uh, if you get a chance, do it. Go to Jerusalem for Easter. Be there. Everything is green, as you know, and lush and beautiful. The garden is all primmed and ready. And the worship is always wonderful. And the uh, sermons are always great. But you're there. It may not be the spot he actually rose, but it's certainly like it, if not. And uh, to worship there on Easter, it is a life-changing experience. And I was so blessed to be there for Easter, oh, for over 30 years, Rick, and uh, hope to do it again myself. And happy Easter to all your listeners, too. Absolutely. The Garden Tomb is certainly a special place. We usually take our tour members there, and it's a special place. Just in Israel, specifically, we always say it's uh, when you read your Bible, you read it in black and white, but when you get to Israel and you get to walk in the places where these events took place, it's like it's in color. So I have so many great memories, as uh, you do as well. Thank you so much, David. As we celebrate Easter this week, you stay safe, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Indeed, he has risen. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Winky Medad, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And from Prophecy Today, we want to encourage you to remember our Lord's Resurrection Day on this weekend. But around the world also, it's Passover. And I always love talking to our friends in Israel and around the world as to how they celebrate Passover. Winky Madad joins us. He's a regular guest on our program and a good friend to us and somebody that it's almost like family here on the Prophecy Today radio program. Thank you so much for joining us, Winky. Thank you for having me on. Well, Winky, most of our regular listeners will know that you are an observant Jew. You observe the feast. And so we're approaching Passover, and we're actually recording this program in advance because uh, if we were to do it on Saturday, you wouldn't be able to do it because uh, you are an observant Jew. But could you talk to us a little bit about Passover and what Passover means to the Jewish faith? Well, I would say that it is one of the most important identity holidays or a holiday of memory. It marks the exodus from Egypt, the leaving of a group of slaves 
that eventually became a people through the desert into the land, into the promised land. And it has so many rituals and symbolic acts, especially at the first night, well, one night here in Israel, two nights in the countries abroad, which we call in Hebrew the Seder, from the word of order, the, the order of service, I guess, is probably the closest I can come to in English, in which the story is retold, and other commentaries and songs, and eating of the matzot, the, the dry bread, greens, eggs, and depending where you came from, either gefilte fish or hot Moroccan fish, all sorts of uh, things that you can eat that are special. The one thing, of course, that we cannot eat is leavened bread. That is, as everybody knows who reads the Bible, that is banned, that is prohibited for the full seven or eight days of the holiday. Observant Jews, those who try to fulfill all the biblical commands and and the oral law commandments, of course, very rigorously, uh, a diet, a strict diet. We have uh, one day at the beginning, one day at the end. It's just, uh, of course, the first meal is as much family as possible can get together. And I think this year, for the first time in over two years, uh, most of my family will be together at my daughter's house for the festive meal. Can you tell us what are some of the special things? You've already mentioned a few of the foods that you may eat, but what are some of the special memories that you have maybe in your background, in your family, or not just food, but just give us some of the flavor of Passover? Well, of course, it's a lot of work in the week leading up. I can tell you that I'm tired already. There's a lot of cleaning. The whole idea is not only not to eat leavened bread, but anything that is made that is leavened or baked is out of the house. The house gets cleaned. The kitchen gets cleaned up, down, and around. Cakes, cookies, all sorts of these things, they go out. Uh, some people put on a lot of weight in the week before uh, Passover, <laughs> I can tell you that, getting rid of the stuff. And uh, then it's symbolically burnt on the morning before the evening uh, Seder festive meal. In other words, it, it's very, very, I don't know if most of the people here probably can go on, uh, you know, websites and, and news sites and look around. You'll see people burning the leavened product in the morning. And then the preparation we make, my special, of course, is I take a horseradish root for the, what we call the maror, the bitter element that will remind us of the years of the slavery. And uh, I make that special and my kids, they try to be brave and bite into it and all get all red and choked up. And the matzah, the first time you eat a matzah, it's our custom uh, a month before Passover to not eat the uh, matzah wafers, I guess, the square wafers, I guess you can call them. And... Uh, I think they taste great. Other people sort of rumble around with them. And there are the four questions that the youngest child at the Seder table will ask, why is this night different in four different ways? And then we read from a, a text, a special booklet called the Haggadah. And it goes through the entire story of uh, leaving Canaan into Egypt, becoming slaves, the plagues, and then coming out and the splitting of the sea and the receiving of the of the Torah and entering into the land of Israel. And uh, it, it could go on for about four to five hours. I know some people that stay up to about one, two o'clock in the morning, uh, sitting around the table and, and telling things. And everybody tries to 
imagine uh, new things to say. So it is a wonderful uh, holiday and a beginning of it, the opening festive meal. I imagine you as the patriarch of your family, are you the one that leads this meal, this uh, Passover Seder every year? When it's done at my house yet, yes. I try to get out of it when I'm at my son-in-law's house, <laughs> but uh, they keep on calling on me to say things, and my wife corrects me. Well, it sounds, and I'm sure that every family has their own uh, special way that they observe it, all kind of consistent with the with the overall schedule of the Seder, but each family unique in its own way. It sounds like a special time, and thank you for sharing that with us, Winky. Sure. Well, the next question, really the only question I wanted to talk to you uh, about this week, uh, there's some uh, Jewish people that are looking to potentially sacrifice an animal on the Temple Mount. Can you tell us about that story, what's going on there? Well, uh, let me sort of introduce it this way. About a hundred, almost 200 years ago, rabbis in Eastern Europe began to deliberate whether it would be possible to bring the Passover or the Paschal sacrifice. And I'm not going to go into the intricacies involved, but it sort of like became a uh, background noise, shall I say, that that would be like the first step to really raise the consciousness of the Jewish people and those who admire and seek to help the Jewish people in terms of rebuilding the temple. So while most of the activity of Temple Mount activists revolves around simply praying on the Temple Mount or reading psalms or even singing Hatikva, the national anthem, there is a small group which says that we are obliged to bring the Passover sacrifice because we don't, according to our sources, we really don't need the temple. All we need is an an altar, and some people say you don't even need an altar. So it's, it gets very complex and complicated. So we're talking about maybe 10 to 15 people, and they have understood now that the police go crazy because the Muslims get very upset, and it becomes, okay, we it's a, either a lamb you or a, or, or a kid goat, but the Muslims go crazy, and they play a cat and a mouse game with the police, we're going to bring a uh, goat into the old city and try to get it up to the Temple Mount. Now, it's quite easy to stop people from doing that, but the police get so excited, they begin to arrest people, and they put them under uh, detention, and they, 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 give, they give them a special order. They can't be in the old city of Jerusalem or in Jerusalem at all, and they get the biggest headlines possible for, for doing nothing. <laughs> But that's part of the situation. You know, you would think that the Muslim would say, okay, listen, don't bring a goat or a lamb, but you're allowed to, to, to pray. No, they don't do that. They still insist upon a complete prohibition of any Jewish religious or custom ceremony or worship on the Temple Mount. Well, I guess the danger in this issue is that the Palestinians may use the fact that this takes place. And again, like you said, it's... it's it's going to be pretty easy to prevent it from happening, but maybe uh, just the fact that some people want to do it might be a pretext to start trouble uh, during this time of Ramadan and Passover as they collide or as they occur together this year. I agree with you, sir. I mean, I'm not uh, fully in favor of this at all. 
but of course, one could say, uh, actually, they need no pretext. Uh, anything uh, that they want to identify as something that bothers them could be used. So, um, I mean, like last year, the, uh, the last round of fighting with Gaza started because of fights that broke out at the Damascus Gate. Uh, and about five years ago, there was the famous incident of the magnometers, uh, the metal detectors that the police set up and they became a uh, issue. So, well, what can I tell you? That's the situation. Well, Winky, uh, thank you for sharing that information with us. Just explaining to our listeners what's going on. That's what you do so well, and we appreciate it. Uh, but more importantly, we really just wanted to talk to you this week and just wish you uh, Haksameak. Am I saying that right? Haksameak? It's pretty good, yeah. You'd be understood. <laughs> You'd be understood. All right. Well, we, we wish you a, a, a wonderful Passover, and we look forward to talking to you after Passover. Okay. Thank you very, very much. And regards to you, the family, and everybody listening. Itamar Marcus joins us today. He is involved with Palestinian Media Watch. It's an organization, and it's a man that we have talked to a few times in the past, but it's been a little while. Itamar, thank you for joining us today. Uh, always a pleasure to be with you. If you could, just for those that are not quite familiar with what you and your organization do, could you just tell us a little bit about your purpose and your mission? Palestinian Media Watch uh, follows all the official sources of the Palestinian Authority that we can find out what the Palestinian Authority is really about. They tell the international community they want peace, but by following the official Palestinian sources, their education, their school books, their children's TV, we have learned and we have brought to the knowledge of the world that the Palestinian Authority promotes terror, glorifies terror, very, very anti-Semitic, really, in essence, is not keeping the Oslo Accords at all. And this is all just from studying the open sources of the Palestinian Authority. And we've had a massive effect on American policy over the years, including uh, leading to the Taylor Force Act, which was the cutting off of all funding to the Palestinian Authority by President Trump, which cost the Palestinian Authority over, I would say, $700 million because they're paying salaries to terrorists. And we've been following you for quite some time, and we know that you do good work, so we appreciate what you're doing. Well, what I wanted to talk to you about today is there has been a rash of terrorism in Israel and it seems to be connected to the month of Ramadan. And I wanted to know what is being said, and is is there any type of incitement that is causing this from the official uh, Palestinian sources? Yes, the Palestinian Authority was very interested in having violence and terror right now. And it wasn't because of the Ramadan. It really was because the, the leadership of the Palestinian Authority was very, very weak in the polls with over with 80% of the population thinking they were corrupt, 75% wanting the the leader, Mahmoud Abbas, to resign. So what the PA has done historically when they are weak internally is they promote terror. And we saw them promoting terror already in February. We warned about it. There was a big event of the PLO. And again, the PA leader, Mahmoud Abbas, at that event called for what they called popular uprising. Now, popular uprising means individuals are asked to take knives and stab Israelis, take a car and stab Israelis, it's popular in that it's individuals as opposed to organized terror organizations or Palestinian Authority police. Mahmoud Abbas himself called for this. And at that same event, one of the leaders who was interviewed in the newspaper said, everybody talked about it. 
So here we have explicit that the Palestinian Authority were the ones who wanted this terror that we've had that have already killed 14 Israelis in the last few weeks. Folks, this is different from what you're hearing in the world media and in the world news as you look at this. And and we're talking about having a peace partner, and this is this is the other side of the peace partner for the Israelis. So you're saying a lot of what they're doing and what they're calling for is in response to weakness in their own government. Exactly, exactly. In fact, almost all the times that the Palestinian Authority has uh, initiated terror against Israel, it had to do with their own internal weakness. Uh, Because when you have a terror war going on, the population automatically supports the leaders. And this is what they found has been, uh, been effective for them. One of the other reasons we know the Palestinian Authority is behind this terror is the Palestinian Authority uh, leadership, the, the Fatah leadership, that's the party of Mahmoud Abbas, has been glorifying every one of the murderers uh, over the last few weeks. Um, they've been posting almost immediately on their Facebook pages, on their official Facebook pages, glory and honor to these people, uh, the most horrific, horrific glorification for cold-blooded murders of civilians. Now, um, Anywhere around the world, these these people would be thoroughly, thoroughly condemned. And it is just unfortunate that the United States government and and the European government for the same thing. They they give the Palestinian Authority a pass. They don't treat them as they should uh, for this kind of incitement and glorification of murder. And it's something that we have gotten used to, but we should never get used to it. The United States is committing a moral and ethical crime here. Talking about funding the Palestinian Authority uh, and not demanding that they can really sincerely stop the terror that they're promoting. We see several instances where it seems to be that Mahmoud Abbas is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He tells certain people what he wants to hear. He'll condemn an act of terrorism. But then on the other side, like you said, he'll praise it or even reward it. Exactly. He rewards all the terrorists, and that's what's the most important thing to know. Every terrorist who goes to jail in Israel immediately gets a high salary, and the salary can, if he's in jail long enough, uh, for example, if he's a murderer and he's a life sentence and he's in jail long enough, he can get 12,000 shekel a month, just to give you a sense. The average Palestinian salary is about three and a half, four thousand. 4,000. So he's getting about three times the average Palestinian Authority salary. By uh, just by murdering and going to jail. And this is all at the insistence of Mahmoud Abbas. So how can anyone say that Mahmoud Abbas is a peace partner when this is what he does? Now, you talk about double talking. He tells the Americans, well, these are social welfare payments. It's not rewards for terror. But you know what? It's not true. We know that these payments are not social welfare because if a Palestinian steals an Israeli car and goes to jail, even though his family is alone and has needs, they're not going to get a salary from the Palestinian Authority. But Palestinian kills an Israeli and goes to jail. His family gets these, these massive rewards. So it is definitely linked to terror, and it's not linked to social needs. I'd also point out that the amount of money that the family's getting or that the terrorist is getting in jail as a reward, as a salary, 12,000 shekels, I assure you there is no one who's getting social welfare in the Palestinian Authority, who's getting three or four times the average Palestinian salary. They're getting a tiny fraction of the average Palestinian salary. So this, this message of, and, the, and here you go, the, the, same, the same issue. I've heard American leaders repeat the Palestinian Authority claim that it's social welfare when 
You just look at the figures and the Palestinian laws and you know it's not true. Why would American officials perpetuate the Palestinian lies? It's an outrage. It certainly is. And we know that the, the Biden administration has released funds that were withheld by the Trump administration. Even now, I see the latest article that you have up on your website, uh, the Palestinian Media Watch website, which is palwatch.org. For those of you that want to know where that is, you're talking about the PA is hiding its finances from the world because they don't want them to know what's going on. Exactly. Uh, the Palestinian Authority, under agreements with the international community, with the donor countries, has to uh, have it all available, all of their um, all their finances available online. And we've been the ones who've been going into those reports and exposing that to the world, and the Palestinian Authority keeps getting in trouble because we keep exposing things like how much money they spent on salaries to terrorists and how much money they gave to families that really needed social welfare. So this year... For the first time in a number of years, it's all it's all closed. The site exists, but when you go into it, you can't open up and see the figures. Now, this is a violation of their agreements with the international community. The United States shouldn't be giving them any money just because of the fact that uh, they're not you know they're not letting the world see the numbers. But like I said, there's a tragedy here uh, that the and it's a tragedy for for Israel that the United States and the European countries demand so much less of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, when I say less, they demand nothing of the Palestinian Authority in terms of decency. They allow them to support terror, promote terror, pay for terror, and glorify terror. They wouldn't give any other country, any country in the world, funding with that kind of a record. And for some reason, and this is you have to get to the mind of the American leadership and the Europeans, what is it about their supporting this organization, the Palestinian Authority, even though they're killing Israelis and Jews. And I think there's a big problem in American and European policy here. Well, I certainly agree with you. Itamar, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Thank you for the work that you do at the Palestinian Media Watch, and thank you for providing an accurate portrayal of what is actually being delivered to the Palestinian people. And this is what's causing what's taking place, especially uh, the terrorism that's taking place in Israel right now. You're very welcome, and have a nice Well, Itamar Marcus has been the man that uh, we talked to about situations of what's taking place in the Palestinian media, hence his organization, Palestinian Media Watch. And I do think these are uh, subjects that uh, these topics are ones that we need to keep our eyes on. Well, a friend that uh, is a friend of ours and um, throughout the year, especially at the time of the feast, high holy days, uh, the high holidays, if you will. Steve Herzig, welcome to the program again, Steve. Hey, Jimmy, always good to be with you. Steve is a, he's a national director of North America for Friends of Israel. I encourage you to go to their website. Well, let's talk about the Passover. The Passover started this weekend. Interesting that it is also starting at the same time in the holidays and the kind of a confluence, if you will, of Easter and Ramadan all taking place. But specifically, we want to talk about the three spring feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. So the first feast of the year, the, the festival calendar, is Passover. And we uh, understand that from the book of Leviticus chapter 23. Tell us a little bit about what we should know about Passover? Well, 
Jimmy, the, the main thing you should know about Passover and really what is the least emphasized amongst Jewish people uh, is, and since the destruction of the temple, is the lamb. Mm. The lamb is the feature of this, specifically the blood of the lamb. And you know, in, in Exodus chapter 12, in verse 3, it says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Then it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. So the idea is the lamb, Jimmy. The blood has to be applied. Exodus chapter 12 tells us that. It's to be applied on the lintels. And God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. And the verses you alluded to in Leviticus chapter 23, this particular chapter is so important. Verse 4 of uh, Leviticus 23 said, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim. That's what you're doing, Jimmy, on the on the radio. We're mm. proclaiming uh, these feasts, and we're uh, not communicating them primarily to the Jewish people, as Moses was writing here, but we are, during this time of the Church Age, proclaiming these words because they tie in to the Church. We're not bound under the law, mm. but if we can get a, 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 an understanding of these feasts, it's going to help us glorify God. It's going to help us understand the plan and the workings of God, because I believe all seven feasts really tell a prophetic picture of what God has in store for the nation of Israel and his people, the Jewish people. So you have this picture of a lamb that the blood has to be on the doorpost. You have matzah, unleavened bread, and leaven is always symbolic of sin, the rabbis say in the Haggadah, we use a Haggadah, which tells us the story of Passover. Mm-hmm. And you're right, Jimmy, this year, the story takes place in Jewish homes, Friday, uh, Passover, where Jewish people are going to remember it. And you have the unleavened bread. Rabbis say that represents the evil inclination of the heart. Jimmy, think about that. Leaven. Uh, I don't know what most of your listeners have when they do communion. I've been to numbers of different churches Mm -hmm. and denominations, and they do it differently. But I will say this, if they're not using matzah or some sort of unleavened bread, they're doing it injustice. Because in Matthew chapter 26, Jimmy, Jesus held the matzah. He wasn't holding marble rye or Italian (laughs) sourdough. he, He wasn't holding pumpernickel. Uh, or even Wonder Bread. He was holding unleavened bread because he was celebrating Mm. Passover. And then he said this, Jimmy, this is my body. That's significant, because Jesus had just been on the earth 33 years as a man, 100% man, and there was no sin found in him. Oh, they tried. They tried to find sin in -hmm. his life and in his work, but they couldn't find any because there was no sin in him. And then he held up the cup. And you know what's interesting, Jimmy, is in Exodus chapter 6, and Jewish people do this to this very day, there were four cups of wine during the Passover, 
And we know from the Talmud, which is extra biblical, that these cups existed during the first century when Jesus was walking the earth and on the earth. And listen to where these cups come from, because they're vital in understanding the communion that he established in Matthew chapter 26. In verse 6 of uh, Exodus, it says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and here's the first cup, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So bringing them out from the burdens of the Egyptians, that's the first cup Mm -hmm. that's taken at Passover. I will rescue you from their bondage, rescue from your bondage. That's the second cup. And listen to the third cup, for this was the cup that Jesus held up in Matthew chapter 26, when, he, when it says in Exodus 6, I will redeem mm. you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Mm. In other words, Jimmy, this third cup that Jesus was taking, using Passover as a background, he was now instituting a new, under the new covenant, under his blood, a cup of what's called redemption. Mm. It's so exciting to me to realize that he used redemption of, of slavery of Egypt as a background, as something they knew to institute for you and me, redemption mm. out of the marketplace of sin and to freedom. So they're going to the promised land. Jimmy, you and I are going up to meet Jesus Christ, and what a day that will be. And that fourth cup, the fourth cup the is... Fourth cup, the fourth cup is the cup in Matthew that he did not take. Right. He'll do it with later, and that fourth cup says, I will, that's future tense, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And he said, I'll drink that henceforth when you're with me. So he didn't drink that fourth cup. We're waiting to drink that cup with him. Well, we have to take a break, Steve. But when we come back, I want to continue this conversation so that we can learn more about the Christian role and what Christians can understand from the Passover and how it applies to our life, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And so far, the stories have not let us down as far as what's taking place in our world today. It sure has, Jimmy. Let me remind people that if you want to find out more about Bible prophecy, you can go to our website. There you can see materials that we offer. You can learn how to support our ministry and look at our top stories of the day. Yes. Speaking of websites, uh, we're going to go back to uh, continuing our conversation with the National North American Director of Friends of Israel, Steve Herzig. And Steve, you've got a phenomenal website. I love their radio program. I love everything that they do. Israel, my glory. So much uh, solid, solid information that we can recommend. Steve, it is Passover, and uh, but before we get to that, I want to ask you, I know that you just got back from Israel. <laughs> How was your trip? Oh, Jimmy, we had a fantastic time. It's so good to get started again when we visited people uh, and talked to Israelis. They were thanking us mm. for coming, and uh, told many of them told us we were the first group, or the fifth, or the third, or the wow. second, but certainly in the top ten. Uh, and how thankful they were to reopen again and to get things going. And, uh, you know, it's going to be slow, I think, but steady. And I think as the summer unfolds and then the fall, uh, I think things will get back to where they were. 
In 2019, it was a record for Israel, where they had 4.5 million people. Mm -hmm. They were on pace in January of 2020. We got back actually in March of 2020. We were one of the last trips to go, and they were on record, uh, on pace rather, for another record. But then, of course, COVID and all that. So it's great to get back, Jimmy. Yeah, that is awesome. And I knew, I, I do know that we have trips in the fall, and I know you have uh, also another trip this fall with Friends of Israel. Yes, we do. And then in uh, North American Ministries, our Canadian trip is scheduled to go in November. And uh, we're excited. We have a service trip uh, called Origins. Our Resolve is giving Israel never-ending support. We have 12 young people uh, ready to go to work with Laquette which is a group that helps to feed those people who, and there are a lot of refugees now coming in, as you yes. know, and uh, they're going to be in need of food, and uh, our volunteers will be there to help them. Wow. Uh, excellent. I love the ministry, and I love what you guys are doing. And, and uh, we have always talked about Steve's books. I believe there's volume one and volume two, right, on the, uh, the holidays and, and the feast. Yes, uh, except that they just re redid it, and they took the two books, Jimmy, and, and made, one. made it into one, <laughs> and that happened this year. So, uh, But it was two—saying two, two volumes is kind of uh, complimentary, but a little bit of a lie. I think that each book had like 140 pages, so that's not really two volumes. Uh, now I have one regular-sized book. <laughs> <laughs> These are excellent books. Well, let's talk about the Passover. We are— uh, what can we learn? And I know that you're doing some uh, some Seder meals and you're going through that. What do you find is the most important thing for some for people that will, for the first time, possibly be sitting uh, through a Seder meal that uh, as you teach it? What what I want them to understand is the connection of the lamb. Mm. Uh, John the Baptist, his cousin. Uh, yeah. said in the Gospels, Behold, Behold the, lamb. the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The blood had to be applied on the door, and if there was no blood, there was judgment. And Jimmy, if there is no blood for you and me, that is, if we have not received Jesus Christ as our Savior, have we not taken the blood that doesn't just cover our sins, but remove it, we're good for judgment. And Jimmy, if you and I stand on our own, if, if the Jewish people uh, during the time of Moses just said, you know what, I don't want to do this plague. I don't, I don't want to put the blood on. <laughs> right. It wouldn't matter if they were Jewish. It or wouldn't that. matter if they were nice people. It wouldn't matter if they, were, if they knew people in high places. Wow. If there's no blood, there's judgment. That'll so preach. Jimmy, for the believer, the believer today, even those people who go to church, and there will be creasters. I don't know if you're aware of that word, creasters. I call people who come to church on Christmas and Easter creasters. <laughs> they come twice a year, and just because they're in church yeah. does not mean they're saved. Mm. Just because they say, oh yes, Easter, I believe Jesus died. Amen. You could say that, but unless you appropriate it, unless you receive it, unless you repent and turn to him, you're not. You're outside of the camp. But the beauty of Passover, and the thing that's so neat is it happened one time, Jimmy, and my family, uh, 3,000 years later, yeah. uh, raised in a Jewish home, we remembered redemption. And Jimmy, 
Jesus Christ died once and for all, and once we receive him, we remember what he has done for us. That, to me, is a, is a great thing. And then when you think about the feast immediately following the Passover, which is a one-time event, we remember it, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Mm. That's why Jewish people will tell you that Passover lasts eight days. Right. Uh, but it really lasts one day, and immediately following that is Unleavened Bread. That lasts seven days, and that gives you eight. And that reminds us of sanctification. Uh, that reminds us of being set apart. And, Jimmy, the moment we receive Je- uh, Jesus Christ, we are set apart. And then the third feast outlined in, in Leviticus 23 and it takes place on the third day, is first fruits. And Jimmy, that's what Resurrection Day is all about. Jesus Christ, Paul tells us, is our first, first fruit. Yes. And first fruits is the idea of the Jewish people were to offer God the first fruits of the barley. It was agriculture, barley. And they knew that once they offered God the first, that more would follow. And it's the same thing. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. He rose from the dead. Jimmy, we're looking for a future day, either with the rapture of the church or the resurrection of the saints, to be with him. Because Jesus resurrected, we will be with him too. Boy, that's exciting to me. Uh, that's so exciting, and I, I, that's what Easter is all about. Steve, I'm always, uh, and I love what you say, the Christers. I have never thought about that, but that's a, it's an interesting word. But, you know, as we look at this, and I, I, I love how you went through those and explained each of those feasts, which we could see that Jesus Christ fulfilled those three spring feasts in exact order, correct? Yeah. So he, he fulfilled those in exact order, uh, along with Pentecost, and then it, and we know that he's going to fulfill the fall feast uh, as he did the three spring feasts. But... Um, as we're looking at this, how does this help us to uh, understand more of what God's program is? I mean, should we be celebrating the uh, a Passover Seder as Christians? Is that something that is necessary for us to do? No, it's not necessary. Uh, and uh, I, I think you mentioned at the beginning, I'll be going to churches actually uh, going through the Passover. Mm-hmm. You know... Not all Scripture is uh, about us, but all Scripture is for us. Oh, wow. uh, you know, Leviticus 23, Leviticus is from the Torah. That's written to the Jewish people. That's written to a specific people that God chose. The, the mystery of the Church is revealed as, we, as the New Testament unfolds, and that mystery is that you and I, Jew and Gentile, become part of the body of Christ, But the original program that God had for Israel and the Jewish people is going to happen. So, no, you don't have to celebrate Passover. But I'll tell you, if you want to understand and really be blessed by communion Mm. or the Eucharist or breaking of bread, whatever it is you call it, then looking at the Passover and watching it. For instance, Jimmy, we have three matzahs at the Passover. It's in one bag or one plate that has three tiers to it. Wow. And the middle matzah is called the afikomen. And Jimmy, every year growing up, uh, and to this day Jewish people do it, they take the middle matzah, they break it, they hide it away. It's looked for by the young kids in the family who gather around the table. It's purchased back, a reward is given when it's found. 
and it's called the apikomen, the only Greek word in the whole Seder service. And Jimmy, think about this. I've, I've just kind of hopefully painted a picture. It's one bag, three matzahs, middle matzah, always broken. Uh, it's always the middle, uh, hidden away, purchased back. Everybody eats it. And that Greek word means he came. Mm. He came. Well, who came? <laughs> well, you don't mention it in Jewish to the, around the Seder, but right? you and I know who came. It was the Lord Jesus, the second person in the Godhead, mm. the Afikomen. He came. What a blessing. Wow. Well, Steve, thank you so much. I mean, our time has flown, and I I, I, I hope our uh, folks, you realize you're getting this unbelievable, in a, in a nutshell, what, uh, information that will help you not only to understand God's program, everything foreshadowed, pointed to Christ coming, uh, and how he fulfilled it, and uh, through Steve, um, You've helped us to see that uh, in the future. I know that you mentioned briefly about the prophetic uh, significance of the high holy days or the festivals. What do you see? How does this play out for us in the future? Oh, Jimmy, you could take the seven feasts, the first one being Passover, redemption, the second one, Feast of Unleavened Bread, sanctification, setting apart, first fruits, as we mentioned. Then you go 50 days from Passover. And you get to Shavuot or Pentecost, the birthday of the church. Jewish people believe that's when God gave them the law. Mm. Then fast forward to the fall feast when uh, it's Rosh Hashanah, the new year, uh, and the call of the shofar, uh, which is the calling in uh, Ezekiel chapter 37 of God's call to the Jewish people back to the land. And then Yom Kippur, where they'll be saved in a day. Mm. Uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement the Lord Jesus Christ, redeeming them, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and we know from Zechariah that ten Gentiles will grab the clothing of a Jewish person and want to go to Jerusalem and worship there. We know that's the Millennial Kingdom and God's program uh, that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled. And, Jimmy, you know the rest of the story. A thousand years, Satan let loose. That's the book of Revelation. And finally, a new heaven and a new, new earth. earth. What a day that will be. That's, that's fast forward and that's fast speed, but I hope that <laughs> uh, I know that. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, we always like to wrap up. How can we, if we have Jewish friends, Steve, what, what's your suggestion during Passover and uh, the Feast of Unleavened, uh, these eight days, including Passover and Unleavened, how should we you know, how can we communicate and what should we say to them uh, in order to be a witness? Well, acknowledging that Passover is happen happening to your Jewish friend, if you're a Gentile, is an encouragement to them. It's not uncommon. I meet Gentiles all the time who tell me they've been invited to a Seder. That's part of mm. the program. Being invited is a real honor. And I've met so many Christians who have been invited. What a blessing. And to just acknowledge that to them and to tell them, you know, Passover is, is your holiday, but it means so much to me because one day a Jewish man changed my life. From the time I met him, I wasn't the same. And that man was the one that saved me, and he celebrated the Passover. And oftentimes Jewish people will marvel that uh, their, their Gentile-slash-Christian friends 
know so much and acknowledge them. We want to love Jewish people unconditionally, and we want to ask God to give us an opportunity where they'll ask us, will you share with me what happened to you? Wow. Steve, thank you for blessing us today by giving us this information, telling us about it, how I think it will help people to understand Easter better. And, you know, I know that we celebrate Easter one day a year, but really we should celebrate Easter every single moment of our lives because without that most important event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything in the past pointed to this, everything in the future is going to point back to the moment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 1, 18, he says, I am he that was alive, dead, and now live again. And that's so very important as uh, we approach this weekend and thinking about not only Passover, but Easter. Thank you for sharing with us, brother, and uh, may you, uh, your ministry and all that you're doing and the Seders and uh, your ministry with Friends of Israel and, and sharing and edifying the body of Christ, may that continue. Thank you, Steve. Hey, Jimmy, thank you as always. Well, we've got to take a break, but when we come back, we'll answer that question. How was Jesus in the grave for three days and three nights? Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Credit agencies say that Sri Lanka is about to default on its debt. It's the worst economic crisis in living memory for the island nation. Greg Yoder with Christian World Outreach says the government has restricted imports, raising the price of both fuel and food. Protests rage in the capital, Colombo, as people demand the resignation of the prime minister. Out in the villages, CWO doesn't see rioting, but they do see the same desperation. Pray many Sri Lankans would experience the love and peace of Jesus. And retirement or an unexpected medical discharge can leave members of the U.S. military wondering, now what? The mission field could be a perfect next step. Tom Crabtree served 27 years in the Army before retiring. Now, he and his wife, Robin, support Bible translation teams in Nigeria. At our website, Tom and Robin describe four skills that people receive from the military that make them perfect for the mission field. Get the details at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we've had the privilege of being able to begin and this weekend of where we look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where we talked about the fulfillment of those, uh, those feasts of God, the holidays or the holy days of God, and the Passover, unleavened, 
first fruits, as Steve Herzig talked to us about. You know, on the program today, we looked at events and we examined them in the light of God's prophetic word. As we looked at the events presented to us by Ken Timmerman, we see how God is actively using world leaders to accomplish his will. And then, of course, as we talk to David Dolan, we see what's going on in Israel and how what's taking place there. God is moving behind the scenes, plus his thoughts on the garden tomb. And Rick, as we're looking at this weekend, you know, for some people, it's a totally secular event. But for us, it's the most important event in all of history. It certainly is the most important event in all of history, and we should be celebrating it not just on Easter, but year-round. And I've heard you say, Jimmy, not only do you celebrate Easter year-round, but you celebrate Christmas year-round. And mm. there have been many times when you and I have been in Israel, and we've taken people to the shepherd's fields, and we sing Christmas carols. And then we've taken them to the Mount of Olives, and we've taken them into the old city and retraced the steps, the crucifixion, and we sing uh, songs that remember that moment. And we don't necessarily just do that at Easter. We don't just do it at Christmas. We do it year-round because we're remembering these events, the most important thing to us as Christians. Yes. In fact, that's what Jesus said in the upper room when he was observing that Passover meal where he instituted the Lord's Supper. And he said, in the future, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And of course, he was talking about, and the disciples had no clue of what Jesus was talking about because Christ hadn't gone to the cross. His body had not been broken yet. His blood had not been shed. But can you imagine, Rick, what the disciples thought about after they saw that and they remembered the words of Jesus Christ, this do in remembrance of me? Absolutely. We recently had communion at church and we, we rehearsed that year round like you and not just at Easter, but year round because it is so important. It's so important. What took place It's the basis of our salvation. Well, this week we have a special, uh, our legacy series, which usually uh, we follow up with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and his teaching. We will continue that next week. But we thought it would be special to go back, and it is special for us, and I hope it will be special for you. My father uh, had an understanding and really taught how Jesus Christ was in the grave for three days and three nights. Using Scripture, uh, he developed an understanding of how that takes place. And today on the program, we're going to close out for this Easter weekend, this ending of Passion Week, uh, the beginning of Passover. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung is going to teach his understanding of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how Christ was in the grave fulfilling that prophecy of Jonah for three days and three nights. But let me now focus on a couple of issues that are key for you and me as we first of all come to salvation and then make preparations for the future that God has planned for us. I'm going to focus on Passover, which is a Jewish high holy day, and Resurrection Sunday, the key day in the life of Jesus Christ and his authenticity when he tells us that he can give us salvation, but also tells us about the future. God does have a plan. He started to reveal that plan to the Jewish people in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. When you read Leviticus 23, you find that God gave the Jewish people seven Jewish feasts. And these feasts were annually to be observed by the Jewish people. Now, in these feasts, God gives us a prophecy. In fact, all of the feasts 
are focused on the person Jesus Christ. He was to fulfill each and all of the feasts. There are seven feasts, Passover, celebrating the exodus out of Egypt by the Jewish people, unleavened bread, the separation between bondage and freedom, first fruits, and when the Jews come into the land presenting the first fruits of their harvest at the temple, Pentecost, which is the presentation of the wheat harvest, and when you look at trumpets, it's talking about celebration creation, the Day of Atonement, the time of giving the Jewish people one more year under the blood that is sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering, so that they can extend their time under the leadership of God the Father. And finally, tabernacles, a celebration of how the Jewish people wandered in the wilderness. Now, what was God's procedure? He had a plan. He set in place prophecy. What was his procedure? When you study the Word of God, especially the book of Matthew, chapters 26 to 27, you'll see that after the Passover Seder, which would take place on Passover and the beginning of the day for the Jewish people in the evening, and then Passover the next day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is separation. It means it was separating Jesus Christ from life unto death. And the fact is, he was in the grave, as the Bible called for, three days and three nights. That has to mean that he was crucified on Thursday afternoon, resurrected before sunup on Sunday night, because remember, a Jewish day, the night and the day. So Sunday night before sunup, as John says in his book, when the three Marys went there to the gravesite and were told that he had already resurrected. By the way, that was first fruits, and that was a part of that Jewish set of feast that would prophesy the person of Jesus Christ, crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, resurrected on first fruits. Now this time we're not going to be able to talk about the three fall feasts. Jesus Christ will fulfill those as well. He'll come back to the earth on the Feast of Trumpets. He will enter into the temple on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then the kingdom begins on tabernacles. So he fulfills all seven of the Jewish feasts. By the way, even before he returns to the earth, the next event will be Jesus calling all of us who know him as Lord and Savior to be with him in the heavenlies. That's called the rapture of the church. And that happens before the second coming, seven years before. Which, in fact, when we think about what we've talked about today, that rapture actually could happen today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.